Acts chapter 22, we're going to begin at verse 24. And let me just read the first verse, and then I'll kind of set the scenario. So starting at verse 24 of Acts chapter 22. It says, The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and said that he should be examined under scourging, so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Well, who are the people doing the shouting? The people doing the shouting was a group of Jewish people there on the Temple Mount that the Apostle Paul was preaching to. This was actually a murderous mob that had just tried to beat Paul to death a short time before. But Paul escaped that murderous mob because Roman soldiers came in and forcibly carried him out of that situation. But before he got very far away, Paul did something very bold. He asked the Roman commander for the permission to preach to that very same mob that just tried to beat him to death. And so that's what he did. He stood in front of that mob and he preached a glorious message. We talked about it last Sunday. And in that last Sunday message, we saw that that crowd was following along closely with the Apostle Paul at every point until he mentioned one word, Gentiles. And what was wrapped up with that mention of the word Gentiles was the idea that God cared about and loved everybody. The Gentiles as well as the Jewish people. And to those particular Jewish people at that time, at that place, they didn't like hearing that at all. And so they raised another riot. They, they, they would kill Paul again if it was in their power to do so. So the Roman commander swept them away from that instantly riotous scene and he brought them back into the barracks. And that's where we come to verse 24 now because the Roman commander decided that he would examine Paul by scourging. That's what it says right there in verse 24, to be examined under scourging. Now, do you know what a scourging is? Scourging is not a mere whipping. It's not merely they would get something like a bull whip out and, and whip you on the back. That would be bad enough. A scourging was done with a special whip that was much more like a cat of nine tails with pieces of metal or bone or knotted thread at the end of it. And it was calculated not just to inflict pain on your back, but to rip your back open. Now, to be examined under scourging meant that they would say, okay, what crime did you do? Confess it. You don't confess, whip them. After they whip you, okay, now what crime was it? Now, can you confess? And you see, they would just keep whipping you until you confess to the crime that you did. To be examined under scourging was a tough deal. It was terrible. And Paul must have trembled in his very soul when he, after already being beaten and bloodied from the mob that attacked him just a few moments before, when they're getting ready to do that. That brings us now to verse 25. It says, and as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. So can you see that, can the movie run in your mind? They're tying Paul around this post, they're bearing his back, getting it ready for this uh, horrific whipping that's about to come down upon his back. And Paul says, Excuse me, sir, I've just got a legal question for you here this afternoon. Is this lawful to do for a man who's a Roman citizen? When he said that, I'm sure the centurion dropped the whip, turned white as a ghost, and said, i got to take this to my commander right away. Because Paul was doing something right there. He was revealing the fact that he was a Roman citizen. And that being a Roman citizen, he had rights. 
Now, the idea of civil rights and personal rights and human rights, it certainly wasn't as developed in the ancient world as it is in the modern world. Nevertheless, in the ancient world, there was a such thing as having a Roman citizenship and having rights as a Roman citizen. And one of those rights was that not only could you not be scourged without due process of law, you couldn't even be bound without due process of law. And so when the centurion knew this, he knew that under Roman law, if he did this to a Roman citizen, the same punishment he inflicted on somebody else might come upon him. He didn't want to be scourged, so he instantly took it to the, well, look at what it says to the supervisor, verse 26. Take care what you do. This man is a Roman. Hey, boss, I think this guy's a Roman citizen. we, we got to be tread very carefully here. And Paul's breathing a sigh of relief as the commander comes back in. Verse 27, then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. Now, look, I know what you're thinking right here. You're wondering, why didn't people just lie about the, would you lie about being a Roman citizen and he got you out of a scourging? Well, you might, unless you remember that it was a fairly easy thing to verify because people were given documents and things that verified the Roman citizenship. And if you claimed to be a Roman citizen and weren't a Roman citizen, can you guess what the penalty was? Off with their head, right? You'd be killed. So this was not the kind of thing that people claimed unless they could prove it, unless it could be backed up. So that's why the commander just flat out asked him, okay, man to man, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes. I love what the commander responds with. Take a look here. The commander answered, with a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. They start backing away. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. I like what the commander said in verse 28. With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. Now, I think this is the idea here. He's looking at Paul. And to be honest, again, with the way the text presents it, with the way that the movie runs in our head, Paul is a pretty sorry spectacle as he's tied around that post. I mean, look, he had just been beaten almost to death by a Roman or by a Jewish mob there on the Temple Mount, right? He was bruised, he was bloody, he was swollen, he was disheveled. And there he is, he's looking like a sorry specimen of humanity. And the Roman uh, commander looks at him and he goes, you know, it cost me a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. They must be selling it cheap if a guy like you can get it. But Paul says, no, no, that's not the case at all. I didn't have to pay. I was born a Roman citizen, which tells us that under some circumstances that we don't really know or understand, either Paul's father or his grandfather was made a Roman citizen out of some favor done for the Roman Empire or the Roman uh, army. But the commander afterwards, did you see it in verse 29? The commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. It was wrong to even do that. And the commander's like, whoa, whoa, we've already violated your civil rights. Please, please don't be angry with us. But now look at what happens in verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down to set him before them. The Roman commander seems like a very fair man, right? He's just trying to get to the bottom of this. Look, Paul, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your story is. But when you spoke to that crowd, it almost started a riot. I'm a Roman commander. It's my job to keep the peace. I need to know why you're causing riots on the Temple Mount. Let's take you before the council, which is also known as the Sanhedrin. 
It's sort of like the Congress of the Jewish world at that time. We're going to take you before the council and we will sort it out before them. Now, when Paul heard that, I can almost guarantee you what exactly Paul thought in his mind. Paul thought this, and I, well, it's not literally, but Paul thought, hot dog, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity. <laughs> now, again, I want you to let the wheels turn in your mind a little bit about what Paul must have been thinking here. Just the day before, he had this opportunity to speak to a vast crowd. It was an angry crowd, but it was a vast crowd of Jewish people there on the Temple Mount, right? And what happened to that opportunity? It exploded in his face. He never got to what he really wanted to get to in preaching the gospel because the crowd started rioting. But now Paul's thinking this. And again, if I'm wrong, Paul can correct me in heaven. But I, I just I think I'm right about this. Paul's thinking this. He's thinking, thank you, Jesus. Because, Jesus, even though I would have loved to speak to the crowd and I'm disappointed that that opportunity blew up in my face, how much better to speak to the council? How much better to speak to the movers and the shakers and to get an audience with them? And now I get to preach Jesus to the council. Thank you, God. This is the opportunity I've lived my whole life for. Thank you for this opportunity, Jesus. This is going to be the best sermon I've ever preached in my life. And that council is going to be one to Jesus Christ tomorrow. Thank you, Lord. I see how you're working. Now, is it unreasonable to think that that kind of thought was going through Paul's mind? He's thinking, yes, Lord, thank you for the opportunity. And he's very excited about it. So what happens when Paul's before the council? I'm glad you asked. Take a look now. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, I bet his heart was beating really fast right now, don't you? Look, I got to tell you something about preachers. Preachers just don't think about preaching, you know, week to week and what they do. They also think about their dream sermons, right? Oh, man, if I could only preach to those people, what would I do if I had that opportunity? Now, this is an opportunity for Paul to speak before the council. As I said, something like the Congress of the Jewish world at that time. And think of what it would be like for any pastor, any preacher right now, you get an opportunity to speak to a joint session of the United States Congress. And they got to sit and listen to you for the whole thing. I tell you, any pastor worth his salt would be licking his chops at that opportunity, right? And he'd say, oh, Jesus, I've dreamed about this kind of opportunity. Thank you for this opportunity. I can't wait to speak to these lawmakers, to these influential people, to these people who shape the society. I can't wait for the opportunity to preach Jesus to them. And I'm sure Paul rehearsed this message in his mind, in his heart for years. This was the kind of thing that he would fall asleep at night thinking, if I only had the opportunity, what would I do? And so now Paul is saying, thank you, Jesus. His heart is beating. Verse 1, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, that's a pretty reasonable way to begin, right? I mean, basically what he's saying is, all that stuff they accused me of on the Temple Mount, that's not true. My conscience is clear before God, and I want you to know that. Paul probably thought that's an innocent enough way to begin this message. But did you see what happened at verse 2? And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Let's get the idea. Men and brethren, I lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Pow. That's exactly what happened. In a very haughty, proud, arrogant way, the high priest says, um, uh, Sergeant at Arms, would you slug that guy in the face? 
that's right. Now, again, think about our metaphor here. A preacher speaking before Congress today. Here he is. He just begins the opening. He throws out his opening line of his address. And the Speaker of the House says, stop, please. Um, Sergeant at Arms, please uh, hit that man in the mouth. That's what it's like. And out of the blue, a punch comes to Paul's face, just cold cocking him. He's reeling. His head is spinning. Maybe a slight concussion going on there. But the high priest Ananias commanded this. Paul's claim of a good conscience offended the high priest. It was like, well, if you've been accused of such a crime, you should never claim such a clear conscience. So what does Paul do? Now, Paul's going to do something in verse 3 that I think Paul might rebuke me for this in heaven. We'll find out. I think Paul regretted this. No, I'm going to go a little bit further. I I can almost guarantee you that Paul regretted this whole incident. Look at what he says in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now look, what is that? That's an outburst, right? That's a man reeling from a punch in the face. That's a man who had a heart full of hope and expectation. I'm going to deliver the world's best sermon ever right now to these people. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity. And before he can get one line out of his mouth, he's punched in the face. So what does he do? With a bit of anger, a bit of vinegar, right? He answers back. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Well, what's the reaction from the group? Does the Sanhedrin stop and say, now that's a very good point that that man made. No. Look at it right here, verse 4. And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Right away, Paul goes, my dream opportunity is starting to go sideways. Right? Because now the issue isn't Paul's message. Now the issue is Paul. And you know, no preacher wants it to be like that. The preacher doesn't want the issue to be the preacher, although, look, let's face it, the preacher is part of the message, and there's part of it that is connected to that. We can't deny that. But what Paul wanted to do was put the focus on Jesus, not the focus on the controversy about the punch in the mouth. But Paul Paul says, oh, no, this is bad. I, I need to apologize. And he says, listen, I didn't know that the man who commanded the punch was the high priest. Now, there are some people who think that Paul was lying here. I don't believe Paul was lying. I believe that Paul had some good reasons to to, to think that that it wasn't the high priest. I think, first of all, he had reason to believe it because, look, Paul had not been in the circles of power in Jerusalem and in Judea for some 20 years. Look, people change their periods over 20 years, right? Paul looked at the room and he probably just didn't immediately recognize who the high priest was. There's another reason, and I won't go into the details, but just to kind of give you the, the argument boiled down, there is at least some biblical reason to believe that Paul had bad eyesight. And maybe Paul was very nearsighted, and he couldn't see who it was who said it on the other side of the room, and he just couldn't see. Now, there's some people, and I have a little bit of sympathy towards this third explanation, that Paul was just being sarcastic here. He's like saying, well, I would never dream that the high priest would say such a thing. I don't know if Paul was being sarcastic, but I believe he spoke the truth when he said, listen, I didn't know it's a high priest. I'm sorry for saying that. But what I said about this whole thing going sideways very quickly, look what happens in verse 6. 
But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. Instantly, Paul saw something. He perceived, he read his audience and saw that they were not ready to receive the gospel, that their actions, their attitudes made this very plain. And so you know what? In a decision that maybe he regretted later, but he did it at the time, Paul gave up on preaching the gospel and he did what he could to preserve his life and his liberty before that council tore him piece from piece. So what did he do? He looked at the council and he saw, well, look, half are Pharisees and half are Sadducees. Okay, I see that. Well, let me look at the natural fault line between Pharisees and Sadducees, and I'll get these guys fighting against each other so that they don't fight against me anymore. So notice what he said. He said there in verse 6, I'm a Pharisee, the son of the Pharisee, and concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. He knew that the idea of resurrection was a matter of theological controversy between those two groups. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were basically, in the Jewish world at that time, the Bible believers. Whatever faults they had, however legalistic they were, and there's lots we can talk about the Pharisees and all their problems. At, at the end of it all, they believed the Bible and they said people should believe the Bible. The Sadducees on the other side, by the way, I hope nobody takes it personal that this side's the Pharisees and that side's the Sadducees. The Sadducees on the other side, the Sadducees were a little more problematic. The Sadducees were more like the modernists or the liberal theologians. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So if you got one side of the room that doesn't believe in the resurrection and the other side that does believe in the resurrection, what do you make the issue? The resurrection. And you get them fighting against each other. It's as if our picture here being in Congress, right? You know, the, the, the preacher begins his message. He gets the smack in the face. He thinks the Congress is going to, you know, murder him in just a few minutes. What does he do to divert attention? He says, let's talk about tax policy. <laughs> and he gets them fighting with each other. Now, Paul was making a true claim. Listen, the very core of his message was the resurrected Jesus. He was, in fact, being judged over the matter of the resurrection of the dead. Paul was not lying. He was telling the truth. But he was using, and I'll just put it in these words, he was using a clever ploy to get out of a difficult situation. So what happens? Look at verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. i got to admit, Paul was clever. I don't know how else he could have ever gotten the Pharisees to say, Hey, he's not such a bad guy. Let's listen to what he has to say. But he did. That he got them on their side. He divided the assembly against themselves. And if you want to see how divided they were, look at verse 10. It'll blow your mind. Now, when there arose a great dissension, great dissension, how about this? A great big fight, right? A mob scene, right? When there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring them back into the barracks. 
Do you see how gnarly the fight was between them? They're literally pulling Paul on one side of the others, right? There's a whole group of Pharisees saying, no, he's okay, let's listen to him. There's another group of Sadducees saying, we're going to tear this guy limb from limb. And they're pulling him back and forth, literally between the two groups, so much so that the Roman commander says, we got to send in the SWAT team again and extricate that man out of there because it's that bad. Now, you know who I have a lot of sympathy for in this? The Roman commander. Can you imagine the Roman commander looking at this and saying, Oh, my aching head. Do these Jewish people do anything but argue with themselves? Right? The, the, the previous day on the Temple Mount, he says a few words. He says Gentiles, and the whole place immediately erupts. Now they say one word, resurrection. The whole council immediately erupts. That poor commander, he's just saying, I can't figure any of this out. Let's get this guy out of here and figure out what we're going to do. And so they rescued Paul. They pulled him from the crowd. They did that SWAT team extraction, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, take him by force from among them, and they brought him back to the barracks. Now, if you're Paul, how do you feel right about now? Well, on the one hand, you're thanking God that you escaped death, right? Because you could have been killed down there. If it wasn't for the Roman soldiers who came, you might be Stephen the Martyr Part 2, right? You could have been that. On the one hand, you're thanking God. On the other hand, you're probably more depressed than you've ever been in your life. You know why? Because you lived your whole life waiting for the opportunity to preach to thousands of Jewish people or to the council, even better yet, and both opportunities blew up in your face. They exploded. You dreamed about this. You would fall asleep at night thinking of how great it would be to have these opportunities. And now, once you've got them, they've exploded. Now, I'll put even more upon it. You've got some reason to believe. Now, I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just saying there was some reason for Paul to believe that it was his fault. Can you imagine what Paul's thinking? Paul's thinking something like this. You know what? When I was on the Temple Mount preaching to those people, did I have to mention the Gentiles? Did I really have to? Was that essential? If I wouldn't have said that one word, I, I could have kept preaching to him. I could have maybe won him to Christ. Did I have to say that? And now he's thinking about the thing before the council. Did I have to blurt out that whitewashed wall thing? I mean, really, the guy punched me, but Jesus told me to turn the other cheek. I mean, th didn't I blow it right there? I, I had no opportunity to preach after that happened. I could see where Paul would be at least a little bit torturing himself, thinking that his own mistakes shattered his own opportunities. Do you want an example of how deeply Paul wanted to see Israel went to Christ? Look at it here. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. We'll just put it up on the screen so you can look at it carefully here. Romans chapter 9, the first four verses, it says this. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren according to the flesh who are Israelites. Did, did you notice a few words in that? First, I want you to notice these words. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief over lost Israel. The fact that there were many Jewish people in his day who did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. It made Paul feel depressed sometimes, and he thought about it all the time. 
And then secondly, he said this in that text. He said, I could wish that I could be accursed so that they could be saved. I said it last week, and I didn't mean to be flippant about it. I'm really just trying to be very transparent with you guys. That Paul loved his fellow Jewish people more than I love you. I mean, really. Paul could say, I'm willing to be damned if they can be saved. And you know what? I, I love you all, but I'm, I'm kind of operating under the let's all go to heaven plan together, right? <laughs> not, not under the I'll be damned so that you can be saved. So you look at that and you go, what love he had. What passion he had to see them one to Christ. And now it's all gone. It's all evaporated. It's all blown to the wind. Can you imagine how crushed, how depressed, how dark Paul must have been when they carried him back to the barracks? Yes, he's exhilarated because his life is saved, but all of his hopes and expectations have shattered. They've been crushed before his very eyes. So what happens at a moment like that? What happens when an apostle of God probably feels more low than he's ever felt in his life. I'll tell you what happens. Look at verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Isn't that tremendous? It's just tremendous to me how beautiful that is. First, what did Jesus do? Jesus stood by him. Jesus stood by him. Now look, I'll be honest. I don't plumb the depths of this. I don't know if it was the actual physical presence of Jesus in that room with Paul. Or I don't know if it was just Jesus' spiritual presence in a way that was so real that Paul would just say, Jesus stood by me. I don't know. But all I know is that Jesus made himself so real to Paul at that moment that he said, Jesus stood by me. Paul was alone and probably unbelievably depressed in the darkness of that night in the barracks. He was alone, but he wasn't alone. If everybody else were to forsake Paul, Jesus would never forsake him. Let me tell you something, friends. It's better to be in jail with Jesus than it is to be in heaven without him. And at that moment, Paul said, okay, Jesus, you're here. You're standing beside me. Now, I think there's something else wonderful. Jesus did not come to Paul in his jail cell in the barracks that night to free him, right? To say, okay, let's get out of here. Now, Paul had been miraculously freed from jail cells before. He had. In Philippi, earthquake comes, he walks out. Jesus said, no, Paul, I'm not here to spring you. This isn't a, a jail escape. I'm here to walk you through this. And friends, listen, that's how it is with God's work in our lives, right? Sometimes Jesus comes to us in the midst of our trial and he delivers us from that trial. And isn't that wonderful? We thank Jesus for such times. There's other times Jesus comes and he says, no, I'm not going to deliver you from this. I'm going to walk with you in it. And that's exactly what he did for Paul at that particular time. So that's what Jesus, Jesus comes He stretches out his hands, his arms towards Paul. And what does he say? First, be of good cheer. Isn't that great? Well, I should add, be of good cheer. Look at the text. Be of good cheer, Paul. I mean, it's personal, right? I know your name. I know you. Be of good cheer, Paul. For heaven's sakes, would you cheer up a little bit? 
Now, why did he say that? He said that because Paul needed cheering up. I think Paul was that low at this moment. Just Paul, would you just cheer up for a moment? Paul, you, you don't have to be so depressed. Paul, you, you might think that things are bad right now. But, but don't worry about it. I'm here with you. Now, can't you see that that is God's precious word to every believer? I just think that there's no doubt some dear saints this morning, some dear followers of Jesus Christ. And you are going through it. You are. You're in the midst of the mill. It's a tough time for you. And I just say, I can say this with the authority of the Lord. Would you be of good cheer? Not because your problems don't exist. No, no, your problems are bad. Matter of fact, your problems might be worse than you even think. That was Paul's case. Let me put it this way. We're going to talk about it next week. There were 40 men, assassins, who at that moment were devising a plan where they said this, we are not going to eat or drink until we murder Paul. Paul didn't even know about it here. So it's like, okay, Paul, your problems are bad. You know that. They're way worse than you even imagine. But be of good cheer. Well, isn't that wonderful news? Look, I'll say that to you. Your problems are bad. You may not know the half of it. It might be a lot worse than you know. But it doesn't even matter, does it? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Now, why? Why? This is an important point. Because God wants us to have reasons for this good cheer that we latch onto. God wants us to live in it and walk in it. Listen, anybody can be of good cheer when everything's good, right? No, but the, the follower of Jesus Christ, we can be of good cheer even when it's bad. Why? Look at what Jesus says to Paul. He says, For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, that's two things. First of all, he looks back to what Paul did in Jerusalem. Now, Paul had some good reasons to feel like a complete failure in Jerusalem, right? Message on the Temple Mount to the great big crowd ended terribly. Paul, you're a failure. Uh, message to the council that very day uh, ended badly. Paul, you blew it. You're a failure. What does Jesus say? He says, Paul, you have testified for me in Jerusalem. I saw what you did. I'm okay with it, Paul. Uh, he didn't say you did good, but I saw it. It's okay. You testified for me in Jerusalem. You did testify for me, Paul. I've seen what you do. And let me tell you, there's some of you people right here today. You think that Jesus hasn't seen what you've done. He has. He's seen it. He knows it. He knows everything. He knows every tear. He knows every uh, every struggle. He knows every aspect of the trial. He knows the things that you haven't spoken to anybody else. He sees it all. So that's the one part of it. You have testified for me in Jerusalem. But man, I like the second part of it too. It's really wonderful. He says, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now Paul's ears perk up immediately at that. Rome? I've been wanting to go to Rome for a long time. And what Jesus virtually here hands him two things. First of all, he hands him a ticket to Rome, right? Here's your ticket to go to Rome, Paul. You're going, I'm telling you right now, you're going to Rome. And Paul, great, wonderful, I'm going to Rome. Secondly, he hands Paul, I know how to say it. He hands Paul a Superman suit to put on, right? Because there's not a thing on this earth that can touch Paul until he gets to Rome, right? Jesus said you're going to Rome. Paul, you are invulnerable. There's not a person in heaven or hell who can touch you until you make it to Rome. Because that's where I'm going. There's more for you to do, Paul. And your life isn't going to be done until you fulfill what I've called you to do. 
I'll be honest, once Paul gets to Rome, all bets are off, right? But at least until Rome, he's got like a Superman suit and nothing can touch him. That was Paul's confidence. Here's your ticket. Here's your super. God cannot, let me put it this way. Nothing in this world can touch you until God's finished with you. Don't you have some peace with that? And there's more for you to do. You served me in Jerusalem, that's great. Now I want you to serve me in Rome. And Paul just says, yes, Jesus, you've got another assignment for me. I bet Paul felt that maybe he had fumbled the ball so badly that Jesus was just kind of finished with him. Okay, Paul, I got other people I can use. I don't need you anymore. Let's get somebody who won't blow. Let's get somebody who won't scream at the high priest, whitewashed wall, all that stuff, right? No, no, no. He says, Paul, I've still got more work for you to do. Don't you see that that is the loving word of Jesus to you today? He is not finished with you. He's got more work for you to do. He's got more people for you to pray for, more people to you talk to, more good to do in this world, more people to help, more, more people to lift up from their desperate situation, more grace to go out. He's got more for you to do in this world, and nothing can touch you until that course is fulfilled. So stop being so discouraged. Be of good cheer. Now, look, there's one more dynamic about this, and I'm just going to speak as if it was some sort of physical presence or maybe a vision that Paul saw in that room. When Jesus extended his hand to Paul to bring him cheer, there was a hole in that hand, right? There was a scar, a nail print. You see, everything that he did, he did to bring that message of saying, Paul, You've been preaching who I am and what I did for people on the cross. This is the message that you've been presenting. And I am not done with you presenting that message. But I can just imagine a chill going down Paul's spine when he sees that nail-scarred hand and knowing that it was what Jesus did on the cross, that he was so passionate about preaching, that he wanted to present to the crowd, that he wanted to present to the council, and that he would present whenever God would give him opportunity. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did for us on the cross. Now, now receive it. And be of good cheer. Because God has seen what you've done. And he has more for you to do. Nobody leaves here this morning being in bad cheer. You leave with good cheer. Knowing who God is. That those nail-scarred hands have reached out to you. And what Jesus did on the cross gives you more to do in this world. Well, that's my prayer. I pray, Lord, I pray first of all for those who are discouraged. I can just imagine, Lord, that there's people here this morning and, um, well, Lord, they, they just found it tough to come at all. But, Lord, won't you give them your grace? Won't you bless them with the same kind of, of inspiration of heart that you blessed Paul with there in the Roman barracks? And Lord, I, I pray too. I pray for those, Lord, maybe they haven't given their lives to you yet today. Lord, I pray that they would just sort of realize the foolishness of pushing away those nail-scarred hands and that they would receive who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Here we come, Lord, rejoicing, rejoicing that you've seen what we've done, that you have more for us to do, and we receive it, Lord, with good cheer. 
Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.